0: Terrific. So you want to hear about Larry and Harry? Uh, This is a a story that happened a number of years ago, possibly maybe 10, 15 years ago. Now, I was um, at speaker. I'm at speakers' corner every Sunday. We were there just two days ago, and we're there. uh, I've been doing this for 25 years. Going down with a team, we get up on a ladder and we take on all the Muslims are there, and the Muslims dominate the corner. They have since the 1990s. They are the, by far the largest number. They, it's, um, sometimes it sometimes can be 10 to 1, Muslims to Christians down there. So if any of you are in the London area and you're free on a Sunday afternoon, come on down to Speaker's Corner. That's the place to learn your craft. It's the best place on earth. Uh, there's no other place like it. And you can say anything you want. There are only two rules at Speaker's Corner. Uh, one is you cannot slag off the queen and you cannot use any violence. Both are broken every week. But you can, that, as a result, you can pretty well even deny the Holocaust if you want to. It's great, and that's why we use it as a laboratory to really field test our new material. And we're getting new material that's coming in all over the, from all over the world, and uh, we're using that as to get responses because you get immediate responses, uh, and they can be quite volatile. Back in the 1990s, um, well, when this, when Harry, when I met Harry and Larry. I was, um, on the ladder, and that day, a young Muslim had come from Toronto. He had been sent, he'd come over to find a bride here. I understand the best brides are here in Britain. And he had, was told that when he came here, he was to go to Speaker's Corner and look me up. Uh, and I'm easy to find because I've got the loudest voice down there. So he came down. I didn't see him. There was a huge crowd. He was in the crowd. And he got to know one of the, one of the, my, uh, co-religionist uh, uh, there in the crowd who he turned to and says, is and wanted to know if I was Jay Smith and he said, yeah, he Says, could I speak with him afterwards so we went out to dinner and while we were there on the way he, I was introduced to him and I, I, I noticed that his hand was shaking all the time and he could not look at my eye he was always looking away from me he could not look at me eye in eye and I realized something was wrong so when we sat down at the table I turned to him, his name was Mubeen I said, Mubin, what's wrong? you seem to be nervous and he said, well, didn't you see them? I said, didn't I see what? You mean you didn't see them? I said, what are you talking about? The are two men in the trees. Now, we, are at Speaker's Corner, if you come there, there are these big oak trees with large branches, and we stand underneath them to get shade, or if it's raining, to, be, uh, to get protection from the rain. So I was under this large branch, and I hadn't seen anything. I said, no, what are you talking about? I said, describe what you saw. He said, well, there were two men sitting in the tree above you, in the branch, I said, what they look like? He said, well, they all—they were dressed in white. And they were smiling at you. And they scared me to death. You must have seen them, Mr. Smith. I smiled when I realized what he was saying. So I turned to him and I said, Mubin, let me tell you what you saw. I said, when I get up on the ladder at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, there at Speaker's Corner, Five hours difference in America, eleven o'clock in the morning is many churches are beginning to have their service, and there are many of my supporting churches people are praying for me and they're praying that I preach the gospel and they're praying that Muslims hear and get assimilated and they're praying that I be protected. what you saw was an answer to their prayer you're looking at two of my protective angels I have never seen them the Lord doesn't want me to see them none of my team has seen them, but I know of Christians that see angels all the time they see Angels behind every rock. So I don't believe them anymore. However, you as a Muslim who does not have an index for this has no category to put these guys into. When you see them, I know you're telling the truth. That's why God wanted you to tell me that I'm being protected. I call them Harry and Larry. And every time now, every Sunday, like last Sunday, I just go up and I wave at them and I say, Are you ready? Here we go, Harry and Larry. I need your protection. Make sure I don't get hurt. Make sure I don't get killed. And we do get death threats. We just got a death threat last week, and it's on camera. You can go up on YouTube and see it. He is there. Said, "I'm going to kill you." And it's brilliant to get those kind of death threats because pretty much when you get those, you know they run out of material, and you have the moral high ground. Now Barry was interesting. A number of uh, Barry has appeared twice. The first time I ever met Barry was in the 1900s. Back in the 1900s, there was an awful lot of violence. We got, we got punched all the time. I, I would go through many glasses because I get my glasses broken back in the 1990s. As of 2001, no longer do they punch us uh, because suddenly Islam became a religion of peace after 9-11. <laughs> and that was the new narrative. So they've stopped punching us as a result, which made our job a lot easier. But back in the 1990s, it was quite violent down there. And before I used to get up on the ladder, this was back in uh, 1995, in the spring of 1995, I was introduced to some new historical material, which we're going to talk about a little bit later today, some new historical material that was just coming to the fore, and we're talking about 22 years ago. In 1994, I was first introduced to it, and I was starting to bring it down to Speaker's Corner, and the Muslims got really upset, and I remember one day a... uh, Abu Sufyan was his name. He was a Trinidadian boxer, professional boxer, and he was up on the ladder. And I was starting to confront him from the, from the ground. In fact, in those days, I was not on a ladder. I was always on the ground, and I would confront from the him la- from the ground. And I was confronting him with this new historical material. He got off the ladder, came up to me, and he slammed me, punched me, and I went out cold. What I heard afterwards was about 60 Muslims surrounded me and started kicking me. And then suddenly, a big black man came and just laid over top of me and took those kicks and saved my life, from what I understand, afterwards. Now, by the time I came to, they had pulled me out of the crowd, and by that time, the police had come. And uh, I was unconscious, and they, said, they talked about this black man who I've never been able to thank but a number of years ago, I was on the ladder again, and this time I had just done four debates, and a, a quick of these half an hour impromptu debates that we do all the time. Five minutes, five minutes, five minutes, five minutes. We win every one of those debates. They're the best thing you can do is to get into debate mode. I had done four of them in one afternoon, and some Arabs started butt punching me as I was leaving the ladder. And suddenly, a big black man just came and put me in his arms. He says, Jay, let's leave. And he took all my punches. By the time we left the crowd, when I turned around to thank him, he, was, he had disappeared. So who would you think that is? Well, that's my black angel. I call him Barry. So I have Harry, Larry, and Barry. Which means every one of you can also have your own angels. Just don't use my names, all right? Make up your own names. <laughs> but there's no reason why what we're doing we should have fear of. And it's a good way to introduce this. What we're hearing, and as we go around, and what we're doing, much, probably more so than any of you, but I'm in some ways, I'm talking to the converted. I don't have to persuade you that we need to do evangelism. You're evangelists. This is your work. You're already in the battle. Already. That's why it's so good to be able to talk to you guys and gals. Because of the fact that you're in the battle, and the fact that you are already engaging on the streets, and you're engaging in the schools, and you're engaging the neighborhoods, and you're engaging in the workplaces, you already know what I'm going to say next. I, and that's why I ha- can go much quicker with you than I can with most any other group that I talk to. One of the things that we're finding is that we have been told historically, whenever we talk about Islam, that with Muslims you never confront. Have you been told this? You don't confront Muhammad, you don't confront the Quran, and you don't confront Allah. Those are the three things I've always been told in all my schooling. And I have two degrees, master's degrees, one on Islamic evangelism from Fuller Seminary. And I was told this all the way through my schooling. Never confront Allah. Never confront the Prophet Muhammad. And never confront the Quran. And I always used to scratch my head and think, well, whose agenda is that? That's not the Lord's agenda. It's not what I see Jesus doing in the first century It's certainly not what I see him doing in Matthew 23 when he's confronting the Pharisees head on, is he not? In verse 33, to from 13 to 33, just take a look, the entire chapter is confrontation. You hypocrites, you den of vipers, you white supplicers, the entire chapter full of vilification. That's my Lord Jesus. What is he doing in the temple, overturning the tables, if he wasn't confronting? And whenever he was confronted, he always confronted right back. And pretty much he dealt with whoever was standing in front of him. Now, we have been told, and you're being told this all the time, that the only way to reach Muslims is through what they call friendship evangelism. Are you familiar with this term? Mm -hmm. Friendship evangelism, that you make friends with. Folks, I would suggest that's a pretty good way to start out. But what's the best way to make friends with somebody? Well, I would suggest be honest with them and open and upright, and say and say exactly who you are. We're telling, we've been told that to, to, in order to make friends, you need to come alongside Muslims and find commonality with them. So rather than confront Allah, just say that we share the same God. How many of you in this room believe we share the same God as Islam? That the Allah in our Arabic Bible is the same as the Allah in the Arabic Quran. Anybody agree with that? I'm not going to have one hand up at least. No? Bummer, okay. Well that's what's being that's what's being taught here in Britain now, in most of your churches. This is what you're going to hear. It's being taught all over America that we share the same God. Once you start down that path, either you're being deceptive, deceitful, because I don't know really of any Christians that believe that. If they do, then why are they saying it? And sooner or later you're gonna to have to start you're gonna to have to confront that Allah. Then what's gonna to happen to the Muslim who you started out with by saying we share the same God? Does that not show that you've been deceitful? And if there's one thing I love about my Muslim I mean, I love many things about my Muslim friends, but one thing I love about them is they're never deceitful. Well, I have to be careful. Most of them are not deceitful, especially the most radical Muslims. The more radical Muslim you get, the more honest they become. Now, that's a mouthful to say. You may not believe me on that. But we spend most of our time dealing with radical Muslims. They're the ones I love the most because they're the most like us. They're very much like you. You're going to find the more radical they are, the more authentic they become, the more orthodox they are, the more aggressive they are. And they are the ones who are willing to die for what they believe. Well, those are the kind of gals and and guys I want to work with. They're the ones that get me excited because they remind me of Saul who became Paul. Remember Saul? Saul was a Jew, but not just any Jew. He was a Jew who was from the Hillel school that was very strongly in in, debt. and i mean, sure he was from the Shammah school and the Hillel school the two major schools that existed there in the first century he was the, from the school that actually would believed in eradicating the oppressors and destroying those who stood in front of them not just making Jews better Jews they wanted to destroy and bring in the whole the new kingdom the new davidic kingdom and sh- Saul was part of that school, and that's why he was there when Stephen was being stoned to death. He was holding the clothes of those who were stoning Stephen. He was on his way to Damascus to not only bring the Christians in change, but to kill those who refused. And he did kill Christians. He said so. That's the Saul that God met in a dynamic way on the road to Damascus and made him from Saul into Paul. Saul into Paul. Now remember what Paul became. When I look at Paul and I compare him with Saul, I can see an awful lot of parallels with my radical Muslim friends. You take a look at a radical Muslim friend. Let's just call him Abdul. Abdul, my friend. And there are thousands of Abdul. Abdul means the slave of. And it's always Abdul Rahman, Abdul Rahim, the slave of one of the names of God. So you have Abdul over here, the slave of God. And he is he wants to eradicate all the evilnesses in the world. And he wants to destroy and bring in the new Khilafah. He wants to bring in the new Islamic state, the Khilafat the new kingdom. Well, that's exactly what Saul wanted to do, did he not? My radical Muslim friends will know scripture. He will have read this Quran, but he won't just have read or memorized it. He would actually have studied it, and he will be able to exegete many of the verses that he quotes. Unlike the moderate and the more more liberal Muslims, my radical friend over here on the right, or on your la- left, would be very much imbued with, radical, with orthodoxy, and so he will know exactly from what he, where he gets his authority from. Much like Saul knew his scriptures, did he not? My radical Muslim friend wants to bring in a kilafat and he wants to use, if need be, violence to do so. Now he will start with a pen and then he will go to the, what they call the scale and then he'll end with the sword. Those are the three stages of what they call dawah. Dahwa means to invite, which we would call evangelism it means to write in Arabic. And you always start with the pen, which ma- follows the life of Muhammad. When you look at the life of Muhammad, from 610 to 622, that first 12-year period, he was a minority living there in Mecca. He could not really control anything. He was actually despised as a minority. He was part of the Qureshi uh, tribe, which was a very ridiculed tribe. Uh, he had no influence whatsoever. At the most, he had maybe, maybe 80 followers, and that's about it from what we're seeing in the traditions. And so for that first 12, 12 years, all he could use was the pen, which means he could p- promote his views, he could take those revelations which are the Meccan revelations, which are from basically from Surah 20 to 114 and he could write them down or have them not written down because they were not written they were memorized by his companions sometimes they're written on bones, stones, and on pieces of bark, but that was a very benign environment and you can see when you look at the Meccan Surahs there's no violence there, there's an awful lot in the Meccan Surahs that we would agree with God's up here, man's down here, and neither the twain should meet, therefore you're to obey, you're to submit, so much of the meccans are about submission submitting to god obeying god and that's exactly what islam means islam means to submit it does not mean peace salam is peace salam is a first form verb islam is a fourth form verb and if you know arabic you cannot impose a first form meaning onto a fourth form in arabic not at all and that's why most of those who believe that islam is peace are non-arabic speakers and they tend to be mostly Asians pakistanis having not studied Arabic. So here you have that first 12 years. He's there receiving all these revelations that are very benign. And then he decides, realizes that he needs to get out of Mecca because he's not making much of an impact. He's invited to go to Medina in 622, so he moves to Medina. And for the first two years, he's a guest in Medina. He's been called to arbitrate between the Ansar and the Jews, the Banu Qurayza, the Banu Nadir, the Banu Kainuka family, those three major Jewish tribes who are, have all the riches, who, all have, who control the city, but they, they, uh, they, 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 they are, they're they a real thorn in the sight of the Ansar, who are the native Arabs. And so he is an arbiter. So for the first two years, he tries to arbitrate. And that's why they have the a symbol of the scale in that first two-year period, from 622 to 624, bringing laws and institutions. But then in 624, the, the Jews refused to accept him as a prophet. So he then turned against the Jews in 624. And in 624, then the Caliphate is inaugurated. The direction of the Qibla, the direction of prayer, is uh, re-lined from Jerusalem down to Mecca. And from 624 on, the caliphate begins. And from the 624 is where the sword is used, is where violence is now introduced. And where you start to see, he first confronts the, the Koresh at the Battle of Badr. That's the first big battle. After he comes back, he throws out the first Jewish family. In 625, the second big battle, and that's where you have the bond. they come back to revenge against that battle. That's a battle of uhud He loses that battle, and then he decides to turn against the, the second Jewish tribes who didn't uh, didn't f- support him. And then the third battle in 627, the the battle of the trenches. He then turns and finally. No one wins that battle because they build a trench so neither side can, and can meet each other. He then comes back and he blames the third Jewish tribe, the Banu Qurayza family. And in 627, after, the, after that battle, he takes all 800 men of that tribe and he slits their throat in one afternoon. Have you heard this story before? Is this new to you? Why is it you've not heard about this? Yet this is at the root of Islam. This is what their prophet did. Now, if I were to talk to a radical Muslim, he will have known. He could source that story in Ibn Ishaq, in Ibn Hisham, and al Waqiri, He could source it in Al-Buhari, in in Al-Tabari. I've given you now five different sources in three different genres of Islamic traditions. This is known as the Sira, this is known as the Hadith, and this is known as the Tafsir. Three different traditions that story is found. And yet none of you have heard this story before. Why aren't we teaching people this? This is their history. And yet they tell us that Muhammad is a man of peace. What about those 800 Jewish men that were, had their throats slit in one afternoon? What about all their wives who were taken as concubines for his men and all the children as slaves? Now, see, we're not talked about, we're not told about this. We're not taught this at all in our schools, in our Bible schools, in our seminaries, because we are told to find commonality with Islam, to come alongside them, to see if we can share their God, to see if Muhammad is in our prophetic line. How about introducing Muhammad to your prophetic line? Would you like to do that? And yet, there are Christians in America who are now doing that. Called the Insider Movement. Growing all over the Muslim world. This is their paradigm. Bring Muhammad into the prophetic line. Let him be just along the line of prophets. He may not be the best prophet, but then who, what prophet is perfect? But see, I refuse to accept him as my prophet. I refuse to accept his revelation as my revelation. And I certainly refuse to accept his God as my God. I don't see the Allah of the Quran, anything in here that I like. When I look at Allah in this book, when I look and see what this book says about the God, this God is vindictive, this God is violent, this God is deceitful. This God is incapable of coming to earth. My God can come to earth anytime he wants. What a God we've got. Ooh, I love the God of the Bible. You'll hear this all the time. How can God enter time and space? How could God become a man? Please, Mr. Smith, please don't say. I was doing a debate in Russia, and it was one of these impromptu debates. They heard I was in town, so they wanted to debate me. I don't speak a word of Russian. I said, listen, I, you'll have to give me translators. I went through three translators. They said because I speak too fast. I don't think I do. But the first question <laughs> was this question. And it came up from the, well, one of the speakers. So they said, Mr. Smith, please, Allahu Akbar, God is the greatest. God is omnipotent. Please don't say he became a man. And corrupted himself to become a worm like us. So I turned to my translator. And I said, I want you to say this. Shame on you. They would not do that. I said, I want you to just repeat what I say. Shame on you. How dare you say, Allahu Akbar, that God is omnipotent and in the same senses, but he cannot become a man. You've just taken away his greatness. You have just taken away his omnipotency. If God is truly Akbar, if he's truly great, if God is truly omnipotent, then for heaven's sakes, let him become a man anytime he wants Because my God can become a man. Why can't yours? Get a bigger God. You need a bigger God? Come on home. We've got him. His name is Jesus Christ. Do not limit God. Certainly my God can become a man. Please don't ever say that in my presence. Shame on you. So I said, oh, you mean your God could eat? Yes, my God can eat. Can't yours? You mean your God went to the toilet? Yes, my God could go to the toilet. Why can't your God go to the toilet? You mean I can do something your God can't do? That makes me greater than your God. Finally, they said, you mean your God can die? By that time, I turned to my translator and said, I want you to ask him this. I said, for 10 minutes now, you've been telling me what God can and cannot do. Who are you to tell God what he can and cannot do? Why don't we let God tell us what he can and cannot do? And I don't see anywhere in Scripture where my God cannot eat. Now, who do you think was eating with Abraham in front of the tent of Mamre? there. In Genesis chapter 18, who was there, sorry, Genesis chapter 15, who was there eating with Abraham and you say you are following Abraham, then why don't you ask Abraham who was eating with him? That was God eating with him. So what are you going to do Masurah 5, Iah 75, where it says that Mary and Jesus both ate, God cannot eat, therefore that proves that Jesus cannot be God. What are you going to do with that verse? You're going to have to throw that out or get a bigger God. Come on home, we've got him. So they said, God cannot die. I said, listen, let's, instead of you telling what us God can cannot do, let's see what God says. Let's go right back to John 10. Because there is God saying, for the Son of Man can lay down his life and take it up back up again. Yes, my God can die anytime he wants. And there he was not only saying that he's going to die, but then he's going to take it back up again. That means God, only God can lay down his life and take it up again, proving that he is God. That's God speaking. And there is, I've just killed two birds with one stone. You're always saying, where does Jesus say, I am God? I can't think of a better place than right there where he's saying, I am God. It was fascinating because what you're going to find out with people with Muslims, especially with radical Muslims, they always gear their or delftel their questions to two themes. Almost invariably, everything sectors around the person of Jesus Christ and around the Bible. Most every question flows from those two things with Muslims. Now stop and ask yourself, who? what would you rather talk about but Jesus in the Bible? That's why I can't understand why everybody's not working with Muslims. They are the most interesting, the most easy people to talk to. Because they want to talk about what I want to talk about. I don't want to talk about Israel. I don't want to talk about Trump. I don't want to talk about Iraq. I don't want to talk about the economy. I want to talk about Jesus. And the Muslims are the first to ask the questions. They are the first ones to introduce it. And all you have to do is say two things. So whenever you go up to the next Muslim you meet, just say two things. I believe Jesus is God. I believe the Bible is the word of God. Do you have an opinion? (laughs) You may get six hours of an opinion just on those two. And you better be ready to go out for tea with them. And they will probably invite you to tea. The reason why is you will be the first Christian they have met here in the UK who actually believes what they're saying what we have found is that people are scared to death to talk about Jesus. They talk about anything or everything but Jesus. And we are wasting our time if we don't talk about Jesus. Because as far as I'm concerned, the only real difference between Islam and us is what they do to Jesus. Because if you get Jesus wrong, you get God wrong. If you get God wrong, you get the whole prophetic rhyme wrong. If you get that wrong, you get whole sin and salvation. They have no idea what sin's all about. They just believe it's not keeping the grade, not keeping those rules and regulations, all those myriads of rules and regulations that you find in the Hadith, that you find in the Siddha, that you find in the Quran. That's why they spend all their time obeying and submitting, obeying and submitting, so that they can receive baraka, 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 which you have no idea what I'm talking about. That's the blessing that's recorded by the recording angel that sits on their right shoulder, Against the sins that are sitting on their left shoulder, recording there. And you have a credit balance. Really, you have a, a, a like a, like a bank, uh, credit and debit account that's going on through their whole life. Getting their credit over here, the baraka 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 over here, and their debits and debits and over here. And that's why they've got to bill up their credits. Now, what, stop and think through real quickly. It don't, uh, doesn't every religion have that premise? Isn't every man-made religion based on the idea of credits and debits? Except Christianity. We're the only religion that says it doesn't matter how many credits you get, you can't do a thing about it. There's not a thing you can do about it. Because all it took was one sin to throw us out of God's presence. That's how holy a God we're talking about. See, they don't get that. They have no idea of the fact that we were at one time in the presence of God. Ooh, I love Genesis chapter 2 and 3, except for verse, except for, of course, the one sin. I have an apple over there, but you can see it's been covered up. I don't want anybody to see the apple with a bite taken out of it, because that reminds me every day of the sin, that one sin. From Sunday school on, I was taught about that one sin. And in, on my apple has that sin picture to remind me of that sin. I cover it up. And that's why I don't like fruit today. Ask my wife. I don't eat fruit because of that. <laughs> I've hated apples. I can't stand it. Because of that, because of that one sin, which destroyed everything, threw us out of God's presence. But see, we were in God's presence, and no Muslim knows that. Muslims have no idea that we were in God's presence. Oh, they have the story. It's right there in Surah 2, in Surah 7, in Surah 20, Surah 5 as well. Take a look at Surah 7. There, it, When I say Surah, I mean book, So, just so I get my terminology right. Surah is book, Ayah means verse, okay? Book and verse, book and verse, 114 books. So there it is in Surah 7, and there he is. God is not in the garden. He is not in the garden. If he's not in the garden then they have no idea of what paradise was like. They have no idea that we were in his presence at one time. And if we were not in his presence, then can you understand what's the, what then are they to do? What is it they're waiting for? What is paradise going to look like? Well, take a look at their paradise. Look at Surah 55. Look at Surah 56. Look at Surah 75. Just read the Quran and see what's there. Paradise is nothing more than a carnal paradise. It's a place for men you men, to find virgins. According to some traditions, as many as 72 virgins waiting for you. That's pretty exhausting. But can you stop and think, what's missing in that scenario? First of all, for women, what's missing for you women? There's no virgin men waiting for you. Not that you'd want any. But what's missing? God's missing. See, the paradise they have there is exactly what they think is what it was like at the very beginning. Well, you can get that in Las Vegas. Go and get it now. What's missing is God's missing. In our paradise, in our garden of Eden, God is there walking and talking in the cool of the day. He's asking Adam and Eve, where are they? He wants to meet with them face to face. He can't. He knows they're hiding. He knows they're hiding. He knows exactly where they are. But see, my God limits himself, comes down my direction, comes down to earth, comes into the garden, and is walking and talking the Kuru It looks like he did this every day, and this is something that was habitual. But their garden is up in space. I don't know if you know that. In Surah 7, Ayah 24, it says that when they're thrown out of that garden, they're thrown down to earth, which means the Garden of Eden in the Quran is up in space. It's a completely different garden. What's more, if they're then thrown out of that garden down to earth... And they keep on getting on, and they keep on us thinking that we have a problem with original sin, and they cannot understand how can one person, Adam, how can his sin be imbued on us, imbibed on us? How can we be imputed with his sin? That is not just. That is not fair. There are two verses in the Quran that confront that completely. Surah 53, Ayah 38, and Surah 6, Ayah 161 says, For no man can take on the sin of another. That's stipulating that Jesus cannot take on our sin. And I would agree with them, no man can do that. I can't take on your sin. I can't even take on my sin. No man can do that, but God can. God can. Only God can do that. And I agree with them. That's one thing I do agree with them on. The problem is they have no idea of why God had to come and take on that sin. And that's where we need to bring the story. We need to fill out the story. We need to start with the Garden of Eden. We need to take them back and show them what sin is, what sin has done, the enormity of what sin has done. It has destroyed everything. It has specially destroyed that relationship that we had with God. And I want to get back in relationship again. And I cannot do so as long as I'm thinking that I can baraka 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 my way back to death. You can your away to death. you will not get any closer to God there's not a thing you can do it's all been done with us it's all been done for us and that's why I don't like the Jesus I see in here take a look at the they call him Issa That's that's not even an Arabic name Issa does not mean Jesus Issa is taken actually from a Syriac word called Iesu, which is a Syriac rending for Jesus, because almost every story in here about Jesus are borrowed from Syriac writings. And these Syriac writings were written in the 5th and 6th century, then incorporated into the Quran, and that's why you have such odd stories about Jesus, mostly about his childhood, these stories about him creating birds out of clay, blowing on them, flying up in the air in Surah 3, I 49. The stories about him being born under a palm tree and helping his mother shake the tree in Surah 19. And that's how they get food. All these weird stories, all of them are these Syriac stories. And when you borrow the story, you also borrow the name. And the name for Jesus in Syriac is Iesu. So when they borrow the story, they borrow the name. That's where Issa comes from. Because the true name for Jesus in Arabic should be Yeshua which is like Yeshua in Hebrew. They got the wrong Jesus. Ooh, I love it. Can you see then why we spend all our time confronting this book? It's absolutely hopeless, and especially what it does with Jesus. It emasculates him. He spends his whole time as a child doing odd things. And then as an adult, he spends his whole time denying his divinity and confusing who his mother is, thinking that she's possibly part of the Trinity in Surah 5, I 116. What's Mary doing in the Trinity? I don't know. Obviously, this is borrowed again. But the most heinous part and the most heinous verse is Surah 4, I 157. Surah 4, I 157 says, They killed him not, referring to Issa. They thought it was so. Another was given his... uh, They thought it was so, and then in parentheses, another was given his image. For they crucified him not. In that one verse, they have destroyed everything I know about my Lord. They have destroyed everything I know about the gospel. In one verse, they have destroyed my Lord Jesus Christ. That's why you have to bring your stories, you have to bring your uh, dialogues, you have to bring your discussions back to Jesus Christ. You've got to start and end with Jesus Get, let them know who the real Jesus is. Don't talk about Israel. Stop talking about Trump or Blair. Okay, Stay away from politics and come back to Jesus Christ. Now you're going to get a whole slew of questions surrounding Jesus and you get a whole slew of questions surrounding the Bible. Let me just give you the, the, the most common questions you're going to get. And right from the very beginning, as soon as you have placed your uh, Flag down, and please do tell them who you are. Let them know that you are a Bible-believing Christian and that you believe in Jesus Christ as God. All right. Don't say Lord because they will not, they will not understand what you mean by Lord. Most Muslims think when we say Lord, we're talking about the House of Lords. And I do not want to have my God like those those <laughs> sniveling many of them octogenarians who can't even make it into the t- chamber without being wheeled in. That's not my God. All right. Call him what he is. My Jesus is God. You could even use the word Allah. Jesus is Allah. That's how serious we are saying. We are calling him, but he is the biblical Allah. Make sure you define that. Make sure they know what you're saying. I believe Jesus is God. Do you have an opinion? Because then you're going to have a battle with you. Because every Muslim knows this about Christianity, that we have all elevated the person of Jesus to God, to divinity, which we have not. It's the other way around. God has taken on human form. He's come this direction. You're going to have a lot of problem with the Son of God. That's the other big one that comes out. They all say, how can God have a son? And that's the reason they have to say that, because it's in Surah 4, Ayah 171. So it's right there in the Quran. For, say not three, for God has no son, for God is one. God is only one. He cannot have a partner. Surah 5, a 72. God cannot have a partner. And so they assume that whenever we're talking about the divinity of Jesus, that we're elevating a prophet, a simple prophet, not even the greatest prophet, second to Muhammad in greatness. But nonetheless, we're elevating him to his divine status. And that's why they're attacking it. And that's a good attack. You have to, you have to give them credit for it. They're attacking the right thing. Because they really do believe that we're polytheistic. And that's why we are called mushriks, or mushrikun, all in plural. Those who put or commit shirk, shirk means to elevate or to have uh, equate another or thing or a person with God. And God is what? He cannot have a partner. He cannot have anything alongside him. And that's one reason why the battle is engaged. And that's where we need to engage the battle. You as evangelists confront the notion of son of God. Now, how you can do this? Well, first of all, when they say that he, God has a son, they are assuming that Jesus, therefore, is a biological son of God. Does anybody in this belie- in the room believe that Jesus is a biological son of God? Please don't raise your hand. Good. <laughs> Therefore, you're going to have to define terms. Now, there's many ways you can do that. Um, where are you from? Yorkshire. Are you a son of Yorkshire? Um, you shouldn't even have to guess. You should say yes. <laughs> Definitely. Okay, just be nice and emphatic. I am a son of Yorkshire. And you're proud of it, aren't you? I am. At least I made you proud, today. No, I'm very proud. Well, you didn't show it the first time you said it. <laughs> i just... Trying to see whether you're tricking me. No, I'm just being, perfectly innocent question. So you're a son of Yorkshire, you're proud to be a son of Yorkshire. Does that mean you're born from the ground of Yorkshire? Is there any biological significance between you and Yorkshire? Please say no. Uh, If you want, no. No, no, I really want you to say no. 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 And see, he already gets it. You can be called a son of something. You can be called the son of something without being called biological. There is another way of saying sonship. You're a son of England. You're a son of the UK. You're a son of Yorkshire. We do that all the time. And most every Muslim you ask that question to, suddenly, the button, it clicks in front. Of, oh, that's right. I'm the son of Jordan. Yes, right. I love being a son of Jordan. I'm the daughter of Jordan. So there is a non-biological definition for sonship. What's more, when you look in Arabic, it already accommodates that. You have two names for son: ibn and wahid. Now, Ibn is usually what Jesus is given all the time. Ibn, it's always Isa ibn Maryam, Isa ibn Maryam. That means Jesus or Isa, the son of Mary, the son of Mary, the son of Mary. Ibn always means relational. Wahid is always biological. And that's why Jesus is not called Wahid Mary or medium. It's always Ibn Maryam. It already accommodates it. In Surah 2, Ayah 177, there is a brief fascinating phrase, reference there to a traveler. A traveler is an ibn ul-sibili. That means a son of the road. Muslims will know that. You can take them to it, show them, and say, does this mean a traveler, someone who's a son of the road, has a biological relationship with the road? No, of course not. They get it. In the same token, therefore, Jesus is not a biological son. He inherits everything that the Father inherits. So if the Father is divine, then Jesus is divine. That's exactly what sonship means. Then ask them if they're, if they're, if, if they're happy with that. And they will be livid with anger. Because now they get what we're saying. Jesus is not the biological son of God. He is divine. Son of God is a divine term. And that's why Caiaphas asked it in the Sanhedrin. There in Matthew 26, are you the Son of God? The Son of God, definite article from the Old Testament rendering, would mean that he would have to be God himself. And that's why when Jesus said, yes, I am, and he said, yes, I am to be called the Messiah, and that he added another one, Son of Man, he added that one coming from Daniel chapter 7.14. When he added those three, immediately... Caiaphas tore his robe, turned towards the Sanhedrin, and said, what further proof do we need? This man has blasphemed. Because he knew that Jesus was claiming to be God right there. So every time Jesus calls himself Son of God, he is saying, I am God. Now see how the Muslims react. They get even more angry. But they're getting angry at them for the right reason. Because Jesus truly is God. Back Matthew chapter 26, verse 62 to 66 is probably one of the best places you can go to to where you get three different divine terms for God right there that Jesus is claiming. If you want to see where Jesus says, I am God, just go to Matthew 26 and then go to John 8, chapter, chapter 8, verse 58. That's probably the, 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 fourth, uh, the fourth best place because there he even claims the holy name for God, Yahweh. I am who I am, Ego eimi. Brilliant. And Muslims do not like that. They do not like it, because that's exactly what Jesus is claiming. We've got to get back to the person of Jesus Christ. I see I'm going to be running out of time, so let me just go right to the Bible, because this is the one that we really, this is really where the most every argument has to come back to. Because everything we're going to say has to be couched in Scripture. We have to make sure that everything we say comes out of Scripture. Source everything you do say. Now, this is one reason why in Fander, and uh, Fander is the organization that we represent Fander Institute of Ap- Ap- Apologetics is headquartered here in this building, but please don't tell the Muslims that. They don't know it yet. So zip mouth shut when you leave. This is where we do all our, 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 our filming. It's upstairs. We have a, there's a beautiful studio that OM owns, and they're, uh, they're doing the filming for us. And what we're doing now is we're, doing, we're creating we're, we're confronting the whole historical difficulties between Islam and then looking and showing how we don't have any of these difficulties in the Bible. What am I saying by this? Anything we're going to talk about has to come back to Scripture, does it not? I've always said that. You always do that. That's probably the premise you work from. If that is the case, they're, they're going to have to confront the Bible, and they do. And they, this is one of the first things they confront is this book. They want to confront this book because they believe we've corrupted it, we've changed it, we've accreted it, we've deleted it, you name it, we've done it to it, and that's why it cannot be trusted. The problem is that they're not going to find any verse in this book that supports that notion. In fact, this book has verse after verse after verse that conf- that says that the book is to be trusted. Surah 10, ayah 94. Surah 21, ayah 7. Both say, if you have any doubt, go to the people of the book because they have been given the taurath and the Angel for you. Now, why in the world would they be told to come back to a corrupted book? Surah uh, 29, ayah 46. Do not even argue with the Christians for they have been given the Taurat and the Angel. We use that one all the time at Speaker's Corner. You're not even to argue with us on this one. <laughs> why? Because we've been given this book for you. Surah 4, Ayah 136, Go Muslims, God, I have given both the and the Injil, and the Quran for you. Macy's saying, these these books are for you. Surah 5, Ayah 46 and 47, and verse 68 says, O Christians and Jews, go to those books God has given you, the Tawrat and the Injil, for they are signs for you. Telling us to go back to our own books. And I've asked for 35 years that I've been working with Muslims, I've asked Muslims to show me one verse, just one verse in the Quran, that says my book has been corrupted, that the Bible has been corrupted. In 35 years, they cannot come up with one verse. It doesn't exist. So they're going to have to confront their own Quran if they believe my Bible has been corrupted. So then they say, well, the corruption came after the Quran was written. So, after the 7th century. Well, this is the nice thing about living in London. You have the Sinaiticus right here in the British Library. You have the Alexandrinus right next to it. You go and just show. These are two complete Bible New Testaments. The Sinaiticus has all the books of the New Testament from the 4th century. Right next to it is the Alexandrinus, which is from the 5th century. So, that's... Well, in this case, it's three to two, two to three hundred years before the Quran was supposedly written, but the Quran was not written in the 7th century because we're asking the same questions of the Quran. So we have about 230 manuscripts of the New Testament alone, either complete or partial, that are predate the 6th century that we have available to us around the world. We have around 5,000 Greek manuscripts, 10,000 10, Latin Vulgates, another 9,000 of total uh, number of manuscripts that we can look at, around 24,000 manuscripts we can look at, uh, that, that support the New Testament. We have 86,000, uh, uh, quotations early church father 's quotations thirty six thousand of them that predate the fourth century, predate the Sinaiticus that we can go to in fact, we can look just at the Gospel of John, which is the most contentious book for muslims that 's one they hate the most because it has the highest divinity the high, highest deity i 'm sorry uh, it, it, puts, uh, it shows the divinity of Jesus more so than any other book. And yet, just looking at the Gospel of John in these 36,000 quotations, we can reproduce the entire Gospel of John except for 11 verses just from those quotations, all of them outside the manuscript evidence. Now, when we ask the same question of the Quran, and this is what we're now doing, we're asking the very same question of the Quran. What manuscripts do you have for this book? Since you claim this book is eternal, this book was sent down to a man named Muhammad, this book was complete by the time of Uthman in 650, and that it has not been changed since 650. Those are the four claims every Muslim makes. That is eternal, sent down, complete, and unchanged. Can you remember those four words? Eternal, sent down, complete, unchanged. If you just remember those four words and ask a Muslim, do you agree with those four premises? Every Muslim, whether they are radical, nominal, or liberal, has to agree. When you ask them that, then ask them one simple question. Prove it. Show me one manuscript that comes from the seventh century that is complete and unchanged. Because they're the ones that make the claim. So why aren't we throwing it right back in their laps? They've got to come up with one manuscript from the seventh century that's complete and unchanged. There are no manuscripts at all from the seventh century. Did you know that? We know of the earliest manuscripts, and most of your our, of your scholarly Muslims will know about the Topkapi. That's the one that's in Istanbul, there in the Topkapi Museum. That one is from the mid eighth century. It is only has 78 percent of the Quran, and it has two thousand two hundred seventy manuscript variants uh, from variants from the Quran that we have today within that 78%. So it's a 100 years, over a 100 years after Muhammad. The Samarqand, which is the second most important one, is in Tashkent, in Uzbekistan. That one only goes up to Surah 43. There's 114 surahs. It is so full of variants. It has so many grammatical mistakes that according to the Arab scholars who have now studied it, it is an embarrassment. And it does not equal the Quran that we have today. The Husseini manuscript that is in, in uh, Cairo, that one is a 9th century manuscript. It's a magical, it is a what they call a, a uh, monumental text, which means it has huge writing, only has 6 to 7 lines per page, whereas most manuscripts have 18 to 20 lines per page. It is from the 9th century, so it's 200 years after Muhammad. It is not complete, and it doesn't agree with the Quran that we have today. The Maya manuscript is right here in the British Library. You can see it. We've been looking at it. It is well known. It also goes up to only 043. It has manuscript variants. It is from the early 7th, I'm sorry, early 8th century. You notice not any of these are from the 7th century? The Petropolitanus manuscript, which is in Paris in the Bibliothèque Nationale, that one only only has 26% of the Quran, and it has 93 variants in just that 26%. It is from the mid-8th century. Again, it is completely different from the Quran that we have today, and 75% 75 percent of it's missing. The sauna manuscript, probably the most exciting, is the one that they have, uh, the most recently uh, discovered, discovered in 1975. The sauna manuscript is made up of many different manuscripts. The best one that we have is not complete. It has over a thousand manuscript variants. Uh, it is ca- changed here and there. But what's most exciting about it? It's a palimpsest, which means it has many, it has layers. It's been washed off and rewritten, washed off and rewritten. And when you look at the lower layers and you take it with using ultraviolet light, you can separate the two layers and they don't agree. But what's even more exciting, they do not agree with the Quran we have today. Ooh, I love it. That's the top layer is written in 705, early 8th century. So why hasn't this been told? Why is it no one's known about this? Why is it this is the first time you're hearing it? Why is this not in our Bible schools being taught in our seminaries? Because of this fear that Christians have of exposing Islam, yet see what I've just done in the last five minutes. I've pretty well destroyed this book historically. Now, everything that I've used in the last ten minutes does not come from a Christian perspective. This is a neutral polemic. We've now looking at the, even though we're looking at the modern day Arabic Qurans that you can buy all over the world. And we have found 26 different modern Qurans. In Arabic, not translations. These are Arabic Qurans that do not agree with each other. We're the first to expose it. We're now filming it right now. We introduced this at Speaker's Corner last July. We had to have bodyguards. They were trying to grab them from us. They could not. You can go up and see on YouTube. Just take a look at the 26 Qurans. Look how they reacted. They finally had to pull all the Muslims away from hearing us because they did not want Muslims to hear this. So, This is the kind of damage we can do. What I've been talking about is polemics and apologetics. That's what we do at Fanders. We do polemics and we do apologetics. Let me define terms. Apologetics means to defend. Polemics is to go on the offense. Defense, offense, defense, and offense. If you're going to be an apologist, as you all are, and every one of you, you better know your Bible. You better know how to defend Jesus Christ. Those two things especially. Can you defend the Bible? Can you defend the manuscript areas? Because you're going to be talk- They're going to hammer you with manuscript evidence. They're going to hammer you, hammer you with the problems with not only the manuscripts, the fact that we've corrupted it. Can you defend it? Are you able to quote the Quran to support it? When you talk about Jesus Christ, can you defend his divinity? Divinity? Can you defend his the Trinity? Are you able to defend the sonship? These are the areas that you're going to have to defend. If you want to go on the offense, then we're going to have to train you up because there's no school in the world that teaches polemics. It doesn't exist. There's no book about Islamic polemics. There's no school in the world that would dare teach it because they would be harassed. They would be targeted. That's why we have to go and that's why I'm leaving now to go all over the world because they want me to teach this all over the world in about 43 nations. But I have to go teach it and then leave. Go teach it and leave. They don't even advertise I'm there because it's too dangerous for the institutions. But polemics is brand new. We're, We're the first ones to really use it. Now we are now teaching, and Beth's going to say a little bit more about it. I'm going to have Beth come up and talk a little bit more and just introduce what Fander is doing. Take a tea break, take a tea break. okay? She wants to, that's a timeout. So we're going to take a timeout.